0: Hello, you're listening to Lore and Legend with your host Rick Scott, bringing you legendary tales from the annals of world folklore and mythology. This episode of Lore and Legend is sponsored by our patrons, Christy Carson, Paul Jackson, Sean Powell and Shawnee Basket. Thanks to all of them for your generosity and your enthusiasm for our stories. If you want to support us as well, you can find all the details that you need to do that on our website. Welcome to our first episode of 2021. For this, our Valentine's Day special, we present The Black Prince from our guest storyteller, Kat Quatermass. After the story, you'll have a chance to hear my interview of Kat, which was actually recorded almost a full year ago now at the start of the coronavirus pandemic and just before the first UK wide lockdown. At the start of this series, I said one of the things that I wanted to do was interview the storytellers who had really impacted me in my own journey with storytelling. Not long after I started going to storytelling clubs, I had the pleasure of seeing Kat perform her show Love and Loss at the Storyforge Club in Sheffield. It was a show that made a huge impression on me for the power of its language, the intense physicality and raw emotional energy of the performance. I remember that it left me with the conviction that I simply had to be a storyteller. We're going to hear from Kat about her work as a storytelling consultant, and how the building blocks of story can transform the relationship between us and our audiences, whether that's on the level of individuals or whole organisations. But as ever, we begin with the story. This is Kat Quatermass telling us the tale of the Black Prince.
1: once there was a boy with a thistledown soul he lived in the city of the seven spires and the five domes and he was not like the other boys he never lifted a weapon he never rushed anywhere he never learnt a trade instead each day he went down to the gardens by the river and he listened to the bees as they buzzed from flower to flower he drank in the colors and the perfumes of the flowers and he grew strong on them He walked with his thoughts, and he breathed them into the small clay ocarina that hung around his neck. He soaked up the sun through his skin and smiled it back out onto the world. Until one day, his world changed. At the bottom of the gardens, he looked across the river, and his eye was caught. She was made of silks the colour of the dawn and her dark hair tumbled about her. He described her later to the old man. The light bounced off her as she moved and the rest of the world was bleached away. Everything changed in that moment. He described it again. My gardens turned grey and the scents and the sounds of the world, they no longer reached my skin. After that, each day I would rush into the gardens with my soul lodging itself in my throat. If she was there, oh, if she was there, it would spin out of my mouth and dance with me. If she wasn't, if she wasn't, my soul would sink through my feet into the ground. At first, he was content just to watch her. But then he needed to know who she was. It grew in him. He asked in the markets and the taverns, and the answer that came back to him was clear and cruel. She was the Princess Ishra, the most important princess of the city with the seven spires and the five domes, and it was said that she had turned down every suitor she ever had, although they came from seven times seven lands. Some voices said she had even refused the emperor himself. When he heard this news, the boy explained to the old man, he went to the river. He dipped his hands in the river and lifting them up, turning them so that the water coated his skin, he held them glistening into the evening light and he prayed. And this was my prayer, he said. I pledged myself to girl in the silks of the dawn. I gave oaths that I would do anything in my power to win her. And I begged that if I could not have her, then at least no one else would take her away from me. But then he explained that after the prayer, his soul went to war on itself. The fire in my soul wanted to cross the river, to tell her of my love, to win her to me. But the earth in my soul, it mocked that fire. It said, what was I? What did I have? How could I possibly equal an empire? What right did I have to offer myself to her when she had refused the emperor? And then the river came in my soul, and it was despair. And he followed that despairing river down out of the gardens, all the way to the place where the water fought with the stones and churned and the crocodiles snapped. And that one evening, in the creeping dusk, he stepped up to the edge of a high rock, closed his eyes, clutched his ocarina to his chest and took one foot off the edge. I was ready, he told the old man. I was But then a voice came inside my head and spoke to me and asked me if I was really doing everything in my power. And of course I was not. And suddenly the voice in my head told me about your cave, old man, high up in the hills beyond the city, high up in the hills beyond the city with the seven spires and the five domes. And I knew that I should come to you. I walked here and I climbed and I brought you these coins and my ocarina that are all that I have. Because those voices, they say that you can change a man's soul. Can you? Can you change my soul so I can win my love? His hands were frantic and twisting, first grasping each other, then grabbing the bottom of the old man's tunic, then scratching at his forearms. The old man held him by the shoulders and tried to look him in the eyes until the boy fell quiet and still. I can do this thing. I can take a soul iron forged in a volcano and place it into your breast so it thunders and pounds and will not let you rest. The ringing in its thunder will be rawest power and you will not stop until you have answered that call. But should I do this thing? That is another question. The boy tried to be respectful, but he was in such haste. Will it make me a great man? Yes. Will it win the princess Ishra? I cannot say. My power is to change the souls of those who come to me, not to meddle with those who do not. Will I still love her? It will be the heart of your thundering, as it is the heart of your dreaming now. Three times that night, the old man asked the boy if he would not miss his gentle soul. He painted pictures for him of his gardens, of his wandering, of the bees, the butterflies and the tunes he played before he met the princess. What the boy answered, I cannot say. But the next morning he left like an arrow in the dawn. At that time, the country was at war and the emperor had a great army in the desert trying to win back the eastern lands and the lands beyond them. They had lost more battles than they had won and the men numbered ten times less than they once had done. One morning, a young man walked into those camps and halted, shocked by the stench that was all around, the stench of fear and dysentery. But that young man, he closed up his nostrils and he shut his ears against the moaning and the whining around him and he went straight to the armoury. There he took the oldest, the blackest pieces of armour, strapped them on and found a plain sword, well sharpened. The next morning, he stood in the vanguard of the army and the men around him scoffed and placed bets on his fate. But when the fighting began, he did not just slash and parry and do his best to stay alive, no. He struck for the first enemy he saw, stabbed his sword hard into his gut, twisted, wrenched it out and drank in the shower of blood that soaked him. Another and then another, the same motion, and his shield working from side to side, covering himself and the men around him. It was not long before the cry went up, Automaton! The Emperor has sent us an automaton! And as he killed another man with almost every step, that army found its courage around him, and together they fought on and on and on. And at the end of the day, when he took off his helm and unwound the silk that shielded his very human skin from the sand, a cheer went up, and that cheer resounded for a day's walk in every direction. That young man, he rose through the ranks, became a general, became the general, took direct command of the army, a personal service to the emperor himself. They called him the Black Prince for the armour, which he never gave up. And he led them to take back the border and conquer the next country and the next and the next. In the last country, there was a city that would not yield. And so they surrounded it. But it was far into the desert, and it was built into a great rising rock, and there was more food and water inside than there was without. And so the black prince met with his commanders under the shade of white canvas, and a visitor arrived. A small man with burn marked robes who smiled with his mouth and not with his eyes. That man held up a vial of clear liquid and whispered a secret. A choice then, one thing to wield arms against an army and show no mercy, another altogether to poison a water system and the people of that city. And yet the city must fall. This was the last country before the Eastern Sea. Win this and the Black Prince could return to the emperor. Win this and the Black Prince could return to the city of the seven spires and the five domes. Win this and the Black Prince could return and maybe, just maybe, present himself to the Princess Ishra. And so the order was given. And the next day, the city gates were flung open. The black prince rode in at the head of his army and closed his ears to the moans coming from the city and his nose to the wretched reek of the dying. Down an alleyway, he glanced in a window and saw a woman tipped forward on a chair, a small baby smashed on the floor in front of her like a china doll, but with so much blood. He rode on. He turned his thoughts away from the angry screams of the people. Once the cures were handed out, they would soon forget or pretend to. And then he came to a garden and stopped. His soldiers watched as he dismounted from his horse and crossed to take hold of a small boy sat against a fountain in the center of the garden. And he uncurled that boy's hand and from it he took a small clay ocarina. The soldiers watched as he hurled it to the floor, stood up and moved on. The city was taken. It was done. That night the Black Prince sat in a stone chamber and penned his message to the Emperor. I have won for you all the lands between home and the sea. I have plundered all their riches and sent them to you. Now I ask one thing for you in return. I wish for you to command me to return home to the city of the seven spires and the five domes. And I humbly ask that you might arrange for me to meet the princess Ishra of the same city. She of the silks of the dawn. Yours, the black prince. The emperor was willing and his messages confirmed that there would be a great feast, a perfect opportunity to arrange that meeting, and he hinted that he had a host of other honours to bestow on the black prince besides. The army began their long march home. The city of the seven spires and the five domes began to prepare for the feast, all except the princess Ishra. She sent a message to say she never left her home and would not attend the feast. The emperor waited until his general arrived to break that bad news. The Brack Prince listened in silence to everything the emperor had to say, the praise, the thanks, the honours, which stretched beyond anything you could have imagined. The emperor wanted to make him as a son. He was to inherit the whole kingdom that he had conquered. (laughs) But he then told the emperor that he would not be at the feast either and left. He rode straight to the princess's house, knocked, a sound like thunder. The servants let him in. Places were laid at a feasting table, too. She came in to eat with him. The food was sumptuous. They hardly spoke. When the meal was done, the black prince left his chair and knelt at her feet. There is nothing a man can do, no matter his power or his wealth, that can equal you, princess, and the gift of beauty that you bring to the world. But everything that I have and everything that the emperor has just promised to me, I would lay at your feet. Will you share it with me? He looked up at her and waited until she spoke. Will you walk in the garden with me? I'd like to tell you a story. He followed her out. Once they were both looking out at the river, she began. Once upon a time, there was a princess who was as haughty as she was beautiful. She had seven times seven suitors, but she scorned, sneered and spat at them all. None of them seemed to be able to offer enough. One day, she realised that nothing would be enough. What she needed was for them to offer her something different. Something that made the world seem different. He asked, did she ever find such a thing? She did. One day she was walking in a garden like this one with a river at the bottom. Across the river she saw a young boy who seemed to live with the bees and the butterflies and move like thistledown through the world, playing tiny tunes on his ocarina. And her soul flew up into her throat and went across to the river to him. And her heart followed. Did she ever speak to him? She never spoke to him and he never spoke to her, though sometimes she thought she saw him watching her. She hoped he would cross the river. But instead, one day, he just vanished. He did not look at her as he asked his next question. And she is waiting for him. Why? Have you heard this story before? Yes, she is waiting for him. Even though the people tell her he has gone to an ending with the crocodiles, she is waiting. Now, he looked. And even if a great man were to come, he said, and offer her half the world, she would still be waiting. It was only barely a question. She would she held his gaze. Even if a man came, a great man who somehow seemed in his features to remind her of him, she would still be waiting because how could he be the same? The black prince never broke that gaze. He took her hand, pressed it once briefly to his lips and then backed out of the room out of the house, to his chariot, and out of the city. And with a tumbleweed soul, he drove that chariot across the desert, aimless and without cease.
0: Kat no longer works as a storytelling performer, due in no small part to a difficult relationship with the traditional part of storytelling and storytelling culture. But as she shares, the building blocks of storytelling are right there at the foundation of her work with storytelling in the contemporary world. Kat is a storytelling consultant and a user story researcher who draws from her past experiences with traditional storytelling to help individuals and businesses solve communication problems and reshape their interactions in transformative ways. She has worked with businesses to change the way employees present to each other and how they engage with clients and customers. I thought it would be a great opportunity to talk about the relevance of traditional storytelling and the skills that it teaches in that kind of context. She began by describing where her journey with storytelling began.
1: So the start of traditional storytelling is really, really sort of etched in my memory moment. I was working in local government at the time and I was working part time because I had horrible, weird, chronic pain and fatigue. And I was in a flat that I owned in North East Birmingham in a place called Chelmsley Wood. Um, And I didn't like my flat from pretty much the moment i bought it uh, because uh, my neighbors looked at me funny when they came into my living room and saw I had lots of books and my partner at the time got stones thrown at him for reading books. So I hated everything about where I was living and what I was doing. And I was Googling for something to do. And I found uh, at the time, Des and Ali Quarrel were running a winter version of Festival at the Edge in Much Wenlock School. And I literally made a snap decision, booked a ticket and went and did two days of workshops, one with Amy Douglas and the other with Clive. And I'm desperate, apologies, because I can see Clive's face in front of me and I can't remember his second name. A storyteller who specializes in work in prisons with a real, real strong understanding of how to do that somebody will fill that in and send you a comment about it but uh i remember we were doing the carousel exercise that so many storytellers are familiar with and i was sitting there describing a golden trumpet spiraling up into the air and my arm was waving above the top of my head and i was just filled with the sense of hmm i can do this and i'd been working in local government for about eight years at the time and i was an arts officer and my entire career had been, let's help other people do creative things instead of doing your own creative thing. Because the thing I'd create wanted to do creatively previously was be a theatre director, which basically, unless you're rich, is largely impossible. Uh, so I had this moment of, okay, I'm going to try and run that as a journey alongside everything else I'm doing. And I mm. did for a bit. Then I ran off to the States and did the... Masters in Storytelling over in the States that I never finished. Um, The program that I went to train on was at the time run by Joseph Sobel and Delana Reed, Joseph who is now running the George Ewert Evans Centre for Storytelling over in Cardiff. The program was great, not entirely quite what I expected, partly because of the high proportion of youth ministers that were on the course. It was a thing that I should possibly have anticipated. If you go and study storytelling in Bible Belt, Tennessee, then a lot of the people who might want to be there are in ministry. It, not that it mattered, but it was it was interesting. It was fascinating. I worked with Joseph as well. I helped program uh, the storytellers from the course into schools in the area. That was, that was kind of how I paid for the thing. Um, the reason I didn't finish it was because I had to write a thesis. And so I'd been 10 years out of education before I did this. I went back took me the first couple of essays to remember how to write essays again. And after that, it was all fine. And I did all my essays and I even quite enjoyed the very um, theoretical research methods course that I did to prepare me for my thesis. But to be honest, I'd been out in the world too long and I didn't really develop a taste for academia and I wasn't that fond of proving things. I loved a lot of the other stuff I learned from the course. I loved a lot of the stuff about how to analyze stories. Um, My performance improved leaps and bounds by being over there. Um, It improved more as well by working with different people over here, improved with training with Michael Harvey, with Ben Haggerty. But just being in front of the 300-person school audiences uh, that we were in front of in the States was something I wouldn't ever have got anywhere else. But despite the fact I could do the academic stuff, I was never that keen. And I came back to the UK and then the job to run beyond the border came up. I was like, well, I could put the thesis on hold and run beyond the border. And then I finished re- running beyond the border. And then it was already like two years since I'd done the last bit of the degree and the thesis was still sitting there and I hadn't opened it again. And then you can see where this is going, can't you? So, yeah, I and there's a six-year time limit. After six years, you can't go back and finish it. So I never did. And then I came back and I started performing and doing bits of work with creative partnerships, which was still going then. But I very rapidly discovered that whilst I loved making Love and Lost, the show that you talked about, and I loved performing it, I hated living a life where the only way I could tell whether I'd done a good job was wait until I got in front of an audience and see how they reacted and mostly not know how they'd reacted. Um, it did not sit particularly well with my mental health. Hmm. So I didn't stay in traditional storytelling as the main thing I was doing for very long at all.
0: Kat shared with me what her work entails and how storytelling informs that work.
1: It works as a bedrock. That's, that's where it works, basically. It is the, the bedrock that underpins different things in different ways. So I have two different hats in broad terms, there are many of other extra ones underneath. One of which is as a storytelling consultant or essentially a corporate trainer. And in that the storytelling is the basis of everything that I do. Um, I use a reworked version of the hero's journey model. And I also use a telling of the three little pigs where you move when you mention the wolf has arrived in the story and show people the difference that makes. Um, And the pair of those form an awful lot of my training uh, for different contexts, change management, conferences. Um, People have used the training for different things, including uh, one day where I was asked to do my usual storytelling training, but under the banner of how to have difficult conversations with your senior manager. Um, uh, And I could talk you through how the hero's journey model how I use it in that shape but I bet a lot of storytellers listening are sort of starting to have a guess.
0: <laughs> well um, I'm I'm not sure so um, <laughs> I'd, I'd be very interested to hear.
1: <laughs> so it's a cut down version of the model. Uh, for people that know the original Hero's Journey model from Joseph Campbell is a little bit full of psychotherapy and also can be a little bit full of esoteric concepts so take those away. You go one step back to Christopher Vogler's writer's journey. He's the, uh, I think he was the Disney exec, but he was certainly the, the film guy who adapted Joseph Campbell's stuff and took some of the esoteric stuff out of the way. Um, so we go back that far, and then I go back another simplifying step and take out some of the male and female poles and some of the other bits. And I end up with a hero sets off on a journey. Either falls into a pit or is about to step over the pit without noticing it's there, meets a helper, goes with the helper up a staircase to get out of that pit and move onwards to the rest of their reward. That's my cut-down hero's journey. There's a there's a sort of parallel that I use. I tell them that they can tell the good hero's journey to talk about what they're up to. And then they can also show that lovely staircase that the hero and the helper are trying to go up with a great big gap and a hole down to a belly of the whale if they want to, to show what goes wrong when you don't use the right things. And using that structure, you can prepare for nearly every business conversation. You can prepare for nearly every business presentation. Your task is to work out who the audience needs to hear about as a hero, who they need to hear about as a helper and how you describe the problem and how you describe what's in the toolkit. And the beauty of it is that it's so simple. And that also that whilst people find it slightly mind boggling to start with, once they start trying out, they're oh, this really works. Oh, this really, really works. Oh, I see where you're going there. And it's all just because the the traditional structures of story are so deeply embedded in our consciousness that that they work, that we want to listen more. And more importantly for a lot of the audience I work with who believe they can't remember the content they're going to present on, the story helps them remember what they were going to talk about as well.
0: What, I asked, did she think were the benefits of learning storytelling skills for us as individuals and in our professional lives especially?
1: Oh, gosh. Um, Fundamental ability to give structure to information. So much of information in society is presented to people as lists and is consumed as lists. And we are so not set up for lists. I am a big uh, Walter Ong disciple. I have a feeling it was Hugh Lupton that got me started on thinking about Walter Ong. Stuff Walter Ong is a linguist um, that often gets recommended on early storytelling courses. But very specifically in this context, there's stuff in there about how uh, there's a really strong belief and possibly definite evidence for linguists that until we had written writing, lists as a concept didn't exist. And therefore that when we're taking in information uh, orally or hourly, um, our brains are not very good at holding lists in that way. And given PowerPoint and given how business information so often ends up being communicated in lists. If you've got the skills to not give people that information in a list, but to turn it into a story or indeed a map, which is just a story in a visual form, um, then, then you can help any business move forwards with its internal communications, with its external communications. It's, yeah, it's it's pretty fundamental. It's also really distressing, actually, how much our education system and our early corporate training teaches essay writing teaches remi- written communication and fails to teach oral communication
0: hmm. yeah I, I my experience of education is that I did really do really really well in things with strong context uh, you know story driven things and I always mm-hmm. struggled at uh, math and the way that languages are taught actually mm-hmm. um, I, I it just seemed like learning huge lists of things. And so I never got on with any of that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that makes so. some sense. There's there's some weird oppositions in the world. Uh, uh, maths is full of stories, but they are very abstract stories, a lot of them. um, And and the story of maths is not always apparent in how it is taught at all. Um,
0: mm.
1: But uh, Marion Leeper is a storyteller who wrote a book about maths and storytelling for early years so yeah people have done really interesting things trying to solve exactly your problem there, right for the very small
0: <laughs> yeah i wish i'd had the benefit of that i asked if a better understanding of storytelling skills had the potential to change the way that organizations work for the better
1: yeah so oh so many different angles I think that we've talked a little bit already about the fact that schools and universities spend far too much time teaching writing and not enough time teaching oral communication. For me, that's where storytelling is essential. Not just um, not not just you need to know stories, but you need to understand how stories work. You need to know why we care about stories so that you spend your time thinking about how to put the information you want people to take in into the stories that people need to hear. Um, In the service design world, we use stories in a very formal sense. The service design world uses a very formulaic thing called a user need or a user story. And that's a story that goes in the format of, as a specific type of person, I need a specific thing so that I can do another specific thing. And that model is not a specific traditional storytelling model, but it is a story because it's about the transformation. Uh, The service designer has to look at not just what the person needs, but what the transformation is that they're trying to use it to achieve. And it changes the way we deliver things. So a huge example, there's an awful lot of information, advice, and guidance content produced by people. Uh, in out in the world is created by content designers who really know their subject and really know what people need to know about the subject in order to have got it right, perfectly right. The problem is that most people reaching that guidance don't want to know and don't need to know everything about the subject. What they need to know is the piece of information that will help me make this next decision that I am being pressured to make for goodness knows what reason. And when you apply that thinking to how you create that content, you create it very, very differently. So that's that's just one example of, of the kind of transformation that those small stories can make. Another example is a company might send, a, uh, a, a uh, one company might send another software company a great list of things it needs something it owns to do, a, a tool it's got. And it's somewhere in that list it might say, I need you to give us an Excel download. Um, An Excel being a form of document that you can download things in that's particularly good for data, but it might turn out that they don't need an Excel download at all. What they actually wanted was, I need to be able to see all the data that we have on this subject at once. And the company, if they were presented with that information, could go back and say, hey, there's this new thing that isn't Excel, that is this. Why don't you have that instead? Because it'll do this, this, and this bit better. So that the changes that happen to what you actually build, what you actually make, what you actually give people when you have understood that full story of what change they are trying to make when they are doing a thing is, is really, really powerful. And it's almost a bit of a moot point whether it's storytelling or not. You can talk about it as a form of storytelling. It is called across the world Story uh, User Stories. There's a book about it called Story Mapping, which is one of the kind of bible textbooks about it but it isn't the fact that it's storytelling that necessarily matters it's that it's about understanding that almost every action people take is about some kind of transformation but then I say that's not storytelling I sat at Bledford, which is a place I'm guessing a few people who listen to your podcast might have been to it's a storytelling training place, If it's not a storytelling training place in Wales, it's a place in Wales where Michael Harvey and a lot of different people run storytelling training. And I went there a long time ago, maybe 2007, maybe 2008, and Nick Hennessy was delivering a day for us and he started his day out really stripping things back to trying to get us to say, what is a story? And the word on the bottom of the flip chart by the time we'd been all around the houses was a transformation thinking about stories if you think about stories right helps you think better about people it helps you serve people better
0: when i asked Kat if she still engaged much with traditional forms of storytelling outside of her work she explained she had a difficult relationship with traditional forms of storytelling both as an audience member and as a performer you still engage with traditional story a lot in your spare time and stuff or uh
1: so uh, this is this is um funny almost embarrassing i don't like traditional stories
0: oh right okay (laughs)
1: um i never have liked traditional stories i liked the act of storytelling i also always worked with traditional stories but um i have no patience with most of the written collections. I've ploughed through an awful lot of them because I was very good at following what I was told to do to learn. I have utterly no patience with story rounds, although I've intended a ridiculously high number of them. I am not actually a fan of traditional storytelling at all. Um, I can do a bit, and there are some performers' traditional storytelling that I adore, but traditional stories as a whole I think they're fundamentally important because they shape us. But I am angry with the extent to which they've shaped us.
0: Right. Because they
1: have reinforced a culture that is not good for most of us. Mm. Um, So I'm, I'm passionate about the importance of the shape and the structure of them in how we understand the world. But I'm not really a huge fan of a lot of them. I think it's fair to say. So no, I have been engaging very little. Um, I miss a lot of my friends from the storytelling world, particularly from the time I was running kind of beyond the border and going to a lot of Crack Club events. I miss seeing people. Uh, I miss the fact that there's some of the big shows that uh, I know the names of from when I was just still seeing a lot of storytelling that I haven't seen. So I haven't seen... Uh, Claire Murphy and Daniel Morden's Robert Desnos show. I haven't seen Dominic Kelly's full hero like heroes Light show. Those are there are some pieces out there that I know I would love to see. But the original small scale, well, small scale, small scale is the wrong word. Um, the original on the page collections of traditional storytelling do not hold a great deal of delight for me.
0: Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think we we don't need traditional stories? Do you think that they can be saved from some of the problems that come with them? Um, how do you kind of feel like that? Uh, like So
1: yeah, I think I think it depends on the storyteller and I think the thing is uh, that to, to tell a traditional story in a way that will actually help rather than hinder requires work mm. and that's, that's why I would rather uh I tend to prefer to go to the theater end of performances of traditional storytelling or the the high-end festival end than I do to the um, everybody can tell a story end of storytelling because I think that at the everyone can tell a story end, there is less questioning of hold on, is this message here actually valid? Hold on, so obviously one of the big issues is gender it's not by any means the only issue but as a as a cis white female it's the one that hits me first um (laughs) uh and it isn't even so okay most of the heroes are male that's only sort of a problem if you get then to some of the stories that people think of as being empowering for women, you get to Jack and the Potler Brains, where the Potler Brains is his wife, those kinds of stories, they're just as bad. Just another representation of patriarchy. The, the, the man who makes the excuse of not being clever is just as big a problem uh, as some of the more obvious uh, tropes. Uh, yeah, the the I did a big rant, I, I did a Pekka Kucha rant in the middle of running Beyond the Border Festival uh, that I don't really remember anymore, but it was about 10 different slides in a Pekka Kucha style, Pekka Kucha being the architectural model of how you talk about a set number of slides for a set number of seconds, and I don't remember what either of those numbers are, but it was massive rants about gender in traditional story. Um, and it is it is a problem, and we talked before I came and, and did this call about the Black Prince, which mm. is one of the stories I tell in Love and Loss. Yes. And that story was a huge problem for me when I first started telling it because I desperately wanted to tell it, not from the point of view of the boy who is the center of the story, but from the point of view of the girl. And you can't. It doesn't work. That mm. That is not the right way to apply feminist principles to that story. It doesn't do anything at all. It simply fails and falls over. Where I got to with it in the end is actually... Uh, secretly, privately, I'm not convinced it is a traditional story because the collection I found it in, it's structured with flashbacks in it. And that is so rare for a traditional story. I have a feeling it's a literary creation that the collector picked up from someone in a community but didn't realise that the person in the community had made up. Anyway, that's an aside. I haven't tracked it backwards. But it is feminist in and of itself. Because it is a counterpoint to all those stories where the woman has to hold on to the man when he turns into a nightmare.
0: Right. Yeah. Um,
1: so yeah, and I just go off in so many different side of different ways of dealing with things. But there are loads of the storytellers in this country who are doing really interesting stuff with this. And uh, Joe Blake caves huge investigations into gender and storytelling tim ralph's investigations are not only into gender but also into the concept of transgender identities so so people are doing this work and traditional story can yield exciting stuff so it's not it's not that it doesn't and it's not that there aren't moments of inconceivable beauty when it does it's that a a lot of people do lazy work and b the sources the big collection books that they're all written down in, those sets of sources, I just find really tedious to wade through.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it can be difficult. <laughs> um, and <laughs> I was, we did a we did a show recently where we we discovered this whole thing about parrots being um, storytellers sometimes, um, and there was uh, learned that there was a whole collection that was um, called the Tale of the Parrot. I thought, oh, great, a new storytelling collection. So I got it and I read it and it was just awful because from beginning to end, the whole plot of the thing is that there's a wife who's uh, going to commit adultery um, and the pirate is trying to convince her not to by telling her stories. So it's it's basically just a huge collection of anti-women stories from beginning to the end. It's like... Oh, well, that's, oh, no. this is awful. This is very few redeeming features here at all. Um, and whoever translated it, I learned later, it actually cut out the end where the husband comes back and kills her. It's oh my like, goodness. oh, my God, Jesus. Um, yeah.
1: No, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing. There are stories. So I've told uh, body stories from the Decameron and, and Straparola, partly because they work in a field full of role players, uh, partly because I find them fun. But if I go back and I look at the stories, um, a lot of them, because I'm deliberately picking the ones that are not vile to women, they're actually, you know, they they they'll have ageism in them or they'll have thin, thinly veiled anti-Semitism. That because I'm not aware of the dog whistles, I hadn't noticed was anti-Semitism. Um, relatively easy to take out, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that just the the layers and the awareness of layers. Um, and and some of the difficulty as well, when I was living in the States, I spent a lot of time working out what my boundaries were in terms of cultural appropriation. Mm. Um, and because I have spent quite a lot of time chatting to Dovey Thomason and because I have sat in performances with Gail, <gasps> I've forgotten Gail's second name. Anyway, both of those are leading First Nation storytellers from First Nation cultures that have a particular sacred story culture and a real real issues with stories being shared and particularly with money being made out of stories being shared by non-native tellers. Um, so I developed some reasonably hardline rules for myself that are about not telling tales that I know belong to those cultures, not telling tales that are sacred. And that if I'm gonna tell anything, of that sort, then it has to be a, a inspired by and not an attempt at telling. But it's a really thin line to work, walk. So my telling a Blubber Boy, it's a paragraph in an Angela Carter collection, but it has Inuit roots. The way I tell it has nothing to do with the Inuit story. It can't because the Inuit story is from a culture that believes in reincarnation. And I'm not from a culture that believes in reincarnation. Um, but I wouldn't have the story I do have had Angela Carter not appropriated that source.
0: Mm. And it's
1: a really hard decision as to whether it's fair and right for me to tell it. So yeah, huge, huge amounts of complexity.
0: If the traditional side of story doesn't hold much appeal, Kat is able to draw inspiration from her experiences with contemporary science fiction and fantasy and various forms of social gaming, interactive theatre and role-playing groups. I asked her if the skill of storytelling was important and recognised within that world. Uh,
1: Yes, um... Yeah, when I'm not doing service design and experience design work for technology, which is most of what my work is now alongside the storytelling consultancy, I am spending a lot of time doing games design for uh, most particularly one very large scale interactive event at the moment, but also some other small ones. But the the one one is the large one is about 3000 people in a field four times a year, although obviously this year we've cancelled the first one, I'm expecting the notice that the second one will be cancelled reasonably soon. Storytelling turns up in all sorts of different ways there. Um, It's really hard to describe to people who have no concept of it. So imagine a persistent fantasy world. Ten years ago we would always have been saying Lord of the Rings as your first point of reference and to some extent that's still true because there are orcs in this world. But Game of Thrones is probably more accurate if you were thinking in types of different nations with different cultures and the cultures being really strongly signaled in the clothes people wear and the weapons they carry um, and building up an entire world where that kind of thing happens. So storytelling is really important in the world building sense of storytelling to the whole of that. And I push tiny snippets of narrative into that world but the kind of push tiny snippets of narrative into that world is a little bit more like um writing tiny bits of a short story or a novel plot than it is like traditional storytelling the place that the traditional storytelling turns up in the world which is fascinating and this is common to the three big persistent worlds in the uk all of them have their own folklore which turns up in song and in story and some of that is filked folk from the real world but filked to fit the setting and some of it is completely original folk song composed for the worlds or completely original storytelling created for and in those worlds and it's fascinating to watch the music thrives much more easily because creating spaces with the attention span for storytelling uh is harder even including fireside but they're is that happening so there's it's like a subculture of traditional storytelling happening inside fantasy worlds it's 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 very beautiful to see
0: so being a being a storyteller within within a fantasy world yeah
1: yes yes
0: that is interesting i have wondered a bit about that myself whether uh, storytellers might be able to expand their profession into some of these sort of online worlds and things Uh, Especially once you can go and, I don't know, you can go, might be able to go and tell stories on the side of uh, a mountain in uh, World of Warcraft or something. Yeah. yeah,
1: I have done similar long before I was a storyteller back in 2001, maybe, uh, in a sci-fi online game. I was reading poetry in that kind of world rather than telling stories but yeah it does happen i think it'll be a while before it's professional and when it is it'll come through disney before anyone else (laughs) and it will happen in vr rather than in purely um uh rather than in the current online worlds because essentially they have their financial modeling sorted out Hmm. um but yeah yeah VR spaces and Disney are are the people to watch for where that interactive stuff is going to turn turn up first Uh, at a professional paid-for level anyway.
0: Now, if you haven't been able to tell, my interview with Kat was via a remote call. Our original planned meeting had to be cancelled and rescheduled as the coronavirus pandemic unfolded and people had just begun to self-isolate here in the UK. I finished up the interview by reflecting on the situation and asking Kat what she thought about the future of the interaction between storytelling, technology, and virtual communication, an area which the crisis has arguably accelerated as businesses and storytelling artists grapple with the physical, social, and financial restraints of lockdown. We're seeing a lot of people doing... um a lot more online storytelling because of the sort of the current crisis. Do you think that's going to have a big effect or? <laughs> no. I th-
1: so I think it's going to be very ri- interesting, uh, because I, uh, I can't listen to storytelling CDs. They just don't go in and this is not to do with my, uh, um, not huge enamored of traditional story. It's, it's to do with, I'm not very good at listening to things that are audio without anything visual. Hmm. And, Prior to now, storytellers were great at releasing collections of CDs and not very inclined to release anything with their face of movement in as well, which I always found very disappointing. So I hope that that, this will almost end the existence of storytelling CDs and see that replaced with something that uses uh, the visual as well as the oral. But I think that even more interesting is the live streaming Because the live streaming economy exists, but it exists for very different things and in a very different way. And I don't think there's anyone in the storytelling world, as we know the storytelling world, that understands it. I certainly don't, Um, uh, but essentially it's having to look to vloggers and people who understand how to generate YouTube revenue for Mm -hmm. inspiration as to how to make it work if you want it to work commercially. But the great thing about this phase is that there's a great learning explosion where people use their Patreon or their Ko-fi accounts to pull in a little bit of extra money to support the government self-employed scheme. And as they do, they'll have a space to experiment. They'll learn to figure out whether to use ring lights or not to to make sure that their their facial expressions are really clear. They'll learn where to position their webcam and and which pile of books you need to balance it on in relation to where your monitor is, uh, and all those things that will mean that by the time by the time we come out of this, they should have it set up so that there's actually a genuinely good watchable product. I don't think it will replace. Um, live events unless we go into one virus or another and the world starts to move into this kind of lockdown reasonably long term and i don't think it will threaten live events any more than cds ever threatened live events but i think it would be a really interesting improvement on cds and a way to continue international collaboration when we all get with the program and stop flying
0: i saw a few people getting into it i see some younger storytellers uh kind of doing some youtube performances and stuff and uh there's um a world storytelling guild sort of starting to do month a monthly story circle story round kind of thing um Mm. so this might really kind of uh accelerate that process uh in some ways for some people
1: yeah i mean it's made some things earlier so right as the lockdown hit i was working with the civil service via neon tribe who i work for and we were training some civil service managers and we were training them in a mixture of service design which is a particular process of working out how you deliver the best things that people need um, and storytelling and the final day uh, of the storytelling my colleagues at neon tribe none of them know anything about storytelling uh, specifically other than me so instead of working with the service designers there i was working with Catrice horsley who's a storyteller from Birmingham, who's now based in Sweden. Um, And obviously, she no longer flew to the UK to do it. We did all our planning over loops and Skype. And then we did the call. And instead of doing a six-hour full day with only a lunch break, we did a six-hour day that was a series of 45 or, well, between 45 minutes and 75-minute calls with different lengths of break in between them. And it worked. It didn't work quite the same as it would have done first-to-face and it probably didn't work quite as well but we had engaged people throughout the day we were able to bounce off each other in a way we were really scared might have been hard to do via the software um, and yeah, we 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 would and I think we will do that again very happily
0: I saw my first few online storytelling courses as well uh, in the last couple of weeks I don't know if that's another thing that's being driven by the uh, the present circumstances but, yeah uh, i think
1: it probably will be um yeah but there there is going to be a need actually and oddly it won't necessarily be the storytellers that the, the traditional storytellers that we think of that are best set up to deliver it because there is a specific skill set for example about storytelling on con- conference calls and that's a really interesting how do you use both your own voice? When do you decide to cut to a screen share? How much do you use the chat alongside the call? So there's there's some, there's some corporate and also social communication skills of which storytelling is definitely a part, but actually how you get the rhythm of the mix together is a skill that I think um, people much younger than me might have learnt, but... Um, all of us will be learning more and more and faster and faster at the moment.
0: You've been listening to The Black Prince, a guest episode of Lore and Legend with storytelling consultant Kat Quatermass. Now, if you'd like to follow Kat and her work or are interested in how storytelling could benefit you or your organisation, you can find her at www catquatermass.co.uk and on Twitter at catquatermass. Those links are below in the episode notes and on the episode blog post. The lore and Legend theme music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall and there was additional music from Derek and Brendan Feister. To find out more about lore and Legend you can visit us at www.loreandlegend.co.uk and you can check out our episode blog posts. Please consider joining Christy and Paul in supporting the podcast by becoming a patron. For more details, visit our website and click Support Us. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe out there, story folks.